Listener supported. WNYC Studios. We have at KPCC, we have a lawyer on retainer um, who, who we call to, I, I, who I, you know, use regularly and I run things past her. Um, she does story reviews, you know. It's just another set of eyes. It's just another ear. I think you want to do that for a lot of different reasons, but ethics and journalistic standards is, is one of them. When you're telling a story, there are some pretty fundamental editorial standards you have to at least consider. Objectivity, fairness, crafting an interesting storyline. And you'll need to do it all without getting sued. In this panel, a host, a reporter, and a lawyer tackle all your pod ethics questions. I'm Sarah Gonzalez, and this is Work It! The Podcast, a selection of talks from the Work It! Festival for Women in Audio. Good afternoon. Yes, yes, yes. They're awake. They're, they're here. They're here. They're present and accounted for. Again, I'm Jen White um, from WBEZ. I'm the host of Making Oprah. And thank you. Also with us is Evelyn LaRubia. She's managing editor at KPCC and Nabia Syed, who's assistant general counsel for BuzzFeed. So the goal of this conversation, yeah, BuzzFeed can get some love too. Everybody gets love. <laughs> um, the goal of this conversation is to help you navigate some of the waters you may be entering for the first time as podcasters. You may not consider yourself a journalist, but we're at this time when all media is thought of as journalism, regardless of whether or not it falls under that umbrella, and regardless of whether or not you view yourself as a journalist. So it's important for you to think of certain ethical issues in that realm, but there's also certain legal things you just need to know to keep yourself out of hot water, and we're hoping to give you some guidance around that. We solicited questions ahead of time that we'll be answering uh, through the course of this conversation. So take notes, and uh, hopefully we can help you get through this process. So I want to start by asking Nibia and Evelyn, talk about why you think journalistic ethics matter in the podcast space. Nibia? You know, it's a good thing to remember in America 2017 that uh, journalistic ethics is really about, at its heart, about truth-telling, right? And all forms of storytelling are part of truth-telling, whether it's two people discussing how a television show showed them something that they'd never seen about themselves before or a tale about some small town somewhere with some interesting story. It's all part of this larger process of figuring out like what's true, what's valuable, and what's not. So it's important to get that right. Um, as a lawyer, I tend to think about what one can and cannot do, right? It's very strict rules. But ethics are more malleable, they're more adaptable to everyday life, they're, they can be better in specific fact patterns, and ethics are what you should or should not do, not what you can or can't. And so I feel like if you sort of use ethics as your guiding star, you know, the ethics is the inner boundary of what you can do, law is the outside very limit, you're, if you use that as your guiding star, you're likely not to get into too much trouble most of the time, which is pretty good if you didn't spend all your time and money going to law school like some of us. <laughs> Evelyn, what about you? Um, well, Nabi has said it beautifully. I will say the one thing that she didn't say, which I expected her to say as a lawyer, is that you can get sued. Um, if you say something about someone that is not true, if you didn't do your homework and there are all kinds of things that you forgot and that are not in your piece, your story, right, which is what a podcast is, you can get sued. You can be held personally liable for the things that you say. And for non-journalists yeah. who are working in this space, why do you think it's important for them to still try to adhere to some of the journalistic ethics 
we practice every day. Yeah, I mean, I guess it dep- It is very situational. This conversation is going to be very situational. We're going to have some questions that are that are very specific that help. Um, it sort of depends on what your podcast is about. If you're talking about um, a pop star's music, you know, that's a different kind of conversation than if you're talking about a person and a person's life. Um, there, there are levels of things that you will encounter if you're if you're dealing with someone famous. There's a way that you can do things that you cannot do if someone is a private citizen, and so. You kind of you have to know the rules. How you apply them will depend on your specific situation, but it's it's important to know where those boundaries are and what the rules are. Um, like language, right? You have to know the rules of language, and then you know when you can break them and when you can't. Um, it's it's a lot like that. Yeah. So the, the first idea we want to tackle here is something called context transference, and this is something we dealt with in making Oprah. When we did our interview with Oprah, it was in August, it was prior to the election, and there's a story she tells about having a conversation with President Obama when he is telling her to protect her brand, he says, do what you need to do to protect your brand. It was about having Sarah Palin on the show. He said, in the, at the end of the day, America will get the president it deserves. And she says, at the end of the she said it twice, at the end of the day, America will get the president it deserves. We went into the editing process on that episode after the election. So the, the weight of the statement changed between when she said it and when we went into the editing process. Because of course there was a lot of conversation about our electoral process and how it works and whether people are being disenfranchised and what does that really mean. And after we'd done the interview, after she said that, she said, please be careful with how you use it because it could be taken out of context. So when we went into the editing process, we had this decision to make about how we used that piece of tape. And we spent a lot of time in that conversation. But what we landed on was that in the context of her conversation with President Obama, we felt comfortable using it there but that second weightier, what felt weightier post-election, we didn't feel like it was fair to use because the interview had happened so far ahead yeah. of the election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was the, the ethical decision right. we made. I'd love your take on that, Evelyn. I, I think that's right. I mean, um, <laughs> things are changing so fast and it is an important thing. Podcasts take a long time. They take a lot, lot longer than a story um, that, that we do for air, sometimes in you know a couple hours, three hours, and a lot of things can change. And you do have to think about, um, are you accurately presenting what the person meant to say? And what is it that your audience knows and understands that might color what it is that they're hearing? And so in your case, Someone saying today America got the got the president they deserved is a very different statement. It will be will be um, taken very differently than you know had you heard that in I don't know March of last year. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. I will say one of the things we we really thought about was is any of our decision making being driven by her saying, "Please be careful with that piece of tape." because it was, you know, an interview we had permission to do. She said it in front of a live mic. You know, all of those things were in place. And we really made a conscious effort to, yeah. to remove that piece of the equation and really just work at it from a basis of whether we were using the tape fairly because we, she's a famous person yeah. and you, mm-hmm. you want to make sure you're being honest and telling, telling the truth. Yeah. 
it's it, it, you can't unhear things. Mm -hmm. So she said that, and that's going to ring in your ears, um, and it's going to ring in your ears. I think more it, than if someone hadn't said it. Um, I'm sure you would have thought about it anyway. But I I do think that that probably would weigh in on your decision whether you think about it or not. But I also yeah. think it's a good place to have. This is where editors and yep. uh, th those people come in when you're the only person in the room making those decisions in a vacuum and you yeah. don't have the challenge and you don't have the space to have a conversation about why you're making the decision you're making, yeah. it can be helpful to have other perspectives. You absolutely need to run it, uh, run it past people. Um, and you know, we have at KPCC, we have a lawyer on retainer um, who, who we call to, I, I, who I you know, use regularly and I run things past her. Um, she does story reviews, you know, and I don't do it because I think I'm wrong or and I don't do it because I think I'm going to get sued. I do it because of what you just said. It's just another set of eyes. It's just another ear. It's just someone who can listen to it, you know, clean and fresh and see things that I'm not seeing. And I think you want to do that for a lot of different reasons, but ethics and journalistic standards is, is one of them. Nabia, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I think that pretty much everyone, well, most people, I won't make representations about everyone these days, has an ethical spidey sense. It's just having space to listen to it. Yeah. And sometimes being tired or on deadline or being stressed out hides that spidey sense. But I tell our reporters all the time, I'm like, trust your gut if your gut is telling you something. And even if it's not, just talk to somebody because I do think communication brings out that spidey sense in conversation. Mm -hmm. So let's go to our first question. This was submitted by work at attendee Elizabeth Emery from Cleveland, Ohio. Elizabeth, I hope you're here to hear your answer. Her podcast is called Hear Her Sports, and she writes, in what ways can I use quotes from interviews? I interview athletes, so most will probably be sensitive to how their image is used. One thought was to create quote posters for sale or as a bonus for donations. Nabia. Oof. That's my official legal advice. No. Uh, and also, as a preface, I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. If you have legal questions, you should ask someone. What I will do is lay things out kind of generally. And uh, this one, I, I think it's really important to establish the following spectrum in your mind. On one end is promotions of work that you are doing, of your own work. The other end is profit from what could be someone else's work, whether that is their appearance, their words, their quotes, or whatever. And things are fuzzy and things are gray and they fall along that spectrum, but you should think about it because at the first end, you know, taking a quote and using it as a teaser for your next episode totally fine. That is great. It is you promoting work that is yours, that someone else has contributed to, for more of your own work, right? Putting someone's quote on a t-shirt or on a bag for profit is going to be that other end, and the law doesn't look upon that very favorably. Um, and that concept is called, uh, you may have heard this around, there's some lawsuits around it, called the right of publicity. Someone has a right to publicize their likeness, their image, in their own way. And this uh, concept came about actually in the 1950s when Topps Chewing Gum was like, there are these baseball players, they are handsome, what if we put them on cards and sold these cards and we'll make millions? And the baseball players are like, uh, what? That's my face. You can't sell that with your chewing gum. And this ended up going to the courts. And the courts were like, no, these baseball players spend so much time cultivating their public persona. If you want to put their face on a card that people will trade, literally trade on their image, you're going to need to pay them. That's actually why some cards are sometimes so more, much more scarce than others, because they had to make these deals with teams. And, and that sort of goes to the sportsy nature of this question, too. Athletes and celebrities and other public figures are often people who care a lot about their image, about their own publicity. So you should be very 
very careful when you start to dance on that end of the spectrum for those people in particular. What if it's non-profit making? What if you're pulling a quote from an interview you did to to put it in a promotional sense, but just on like a web page? So you're not making money from it, but you're just trying to draw attention to... So that's, it's a good set of questions for like, what is the difference between law and ethics, right? Because while you may diminish the legal concern there, the ethical question of like, okay, am I pulling this out of context to your earlier example? Is this, am I using this to promote my own show in a way that they were comfortable with? Can be a little bit complicated. And again, it depends on context, but nine times out of 10, putting it on a website for work you've already done and already published, I think is going to be fine. Can I add one thing? What was Absolutely. the attendee's name? Uh, this was Elizabeth. Elizabeth. So if Elizabeth, if you're out there, one thing I would say is just talk to them. Yes. Um, you know, I don't know how big or important these uh, these athletes are, but you know, if they if if they want the publicity, if they like your podcast, you know, you can just ask them. Hey, do you mind if I put your you know if I put your face on a T-shirt with a quote or a bag that I want to give away as a premium to people who you know who subscribe and, and throw in a little cash? Is that okay with you? It might be. So this we're getting into this area of consent. And we have a question here from Samantha Lee from Brooklyn, New York. And she writes, I come from the world of TV where I always have gotten signed releases. Is it common practice to get podcast interviewees or guests to sign appearance releases? Nabia, legally speaking. Legally speaking, look, the whole, po- the whole question here, the ethical question is, are we on the same page about what our expectations are of what's going to happen? The best way to be on the same page is to hand them a page with words on it that they sign <laughs> so it's very clear that you're on the same page. No ambiguity. So I always say, it, like, get a release, right? Get a release. It makes it a lot easier. It's a set it and forget it solution so you don't have to worry as much later. What I will say is it's important not just to use the release as a, as a checkbox, um, there, how many people have seen Borat? It's been 10 years. I feel like it's not a current reference. Okay, some of you have made that decision to watch Borat. <laughs> um, you know. Um, but so the, what was so interesting about the Borat movie is all these people who were humiliated in this film had all signed releases, right? They'd all signed releases thinking they were being interviewed by a journalist from Kazakhstan, which is not what was happening. And so they saw the movie and a bunch of them sued saying, no, 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 this is not what we agreed to. Um, it was fraudulent the way that you, you explained to us one thing and it turned out to be something else. And after months and months of litigation, the courts were like, yeah, no, you signed that piece of paper. That's on you. But they still had to go through months and months of litigation to get there. So, you know, in the case of Borat and with Sasha Baron Cohen, Maybe that project would have been impossible if he had actually been like, what this is, is me making fun of you racists. Like, that'd be hard. You're breaking the rules in that context with knowledge, right? Uh, or, you know, making a particular choice about the rules. But if you, that's not the circumstance, just get a release and make it easier for yourself. Evelyn, what advice for you to have, do you have for people who are just out in the field collecting interviews about making sure the person they're talking to is clear that they're, you know, there to collect audio from them that could be used and yeah, it's so it's easier for my staff. You know, they're reporters to the public radio station with a microphone with a flag. You know, everyone knows that they are there, and they make it very explicit. I'm a reporter with KPCC. I'm interviewing you for a story about X, Y, Z. There is no confusion as to what it is they're doing. So my staff. 
I can't remember the last time someone got a release for something. I'm sure we do it from time to time in tricky situations involving children, perhaps, or something really, really sticky. Um, if you're out there on your own, I think you do have to go an extra mile, and you do have to be very, 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 very clear that this is something that's going to be put out in the, you know, on iTunes, right? Um, and that anyone can listen to. And so um, whether that's a release, whether that's a conversation that you have on tape that you record, which is another way you can do it. Um, you know, I just want to make sure, are we clear? You know that I'm recording you. You know, California is a double consent state, so you, anyone you're recording has to give you consent. Um, and so if you record them sometimes, like, that might be okay. I don't know what the lawyer would say. That's okay with me. Um, I, I want to know that they know what's coming... Um, I'm a no surprises editor. Um, I don't think that anyone should be surprised by anything that they hear on the air or they read on the website. Um, and I think that it's our obligation as, as journalists and, and those of you who are practicing like in journalism adjacent, I would say the best thing you can do is to work as hard as you can so that anyone whose voice is going to be on your podcast knows what you're doing and knows what is going to be what they are going to be saying and what others are going to say about them. They don't have to like it. You don't have to change your mind, but they should know what's coming. Yeah. And, and one way I think to do it just from a practical standpoint is to build it in as just part of your, your process of starting the interview. Say to them, hey, I want to slate this interview, so I'm, the microphone is on. Do I have permission to record? Yep. They say yes and say, just to get started, will you please say and spell your first and last right. name? Yep. It's a way of kind of breaking down this. It, it's official, but it's, it's a kind of practical way to get them talking and to make sure you have that consent. You can also check your levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> what did you have for breakfast this morning? But yeah. it's, it's yeah. a way to get through all of that stuff, okay? Next question comes from Catherine Jaffe from Boulder, Colorado, and her podcast is called Here's the Deal. She writes, is there a scenario in which you would want to send your podcast for approval from someone featured in it before publishing. Evelyn, <laughs> you see the collective head shakes over no. here. Evelyn, talk about that. No. Oh, God, never. Never, 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 never. Um, you can't take it back. If you edit it later, they have a new, an older version that they can use against you, you know, to claim all of these nefarious reasons why you might have changed something when it might have just been like the tape was garbled. Um, no. Uh, your final work product should be the only product that goes out into the world. That That is, you know, newspaper website, um, audio, whatever it is, you don't send people copies of your work to review unless it is someone who works for you, like your lawyer, mm -hmm. someone on your staff, and that is it. Now, um, people should know what's coming. Um, and you can tell them what it's going to say. You can you can read it to them. You might even want to play a little bit to someone on the phone. That's all fine. But them actually owning it and having it and reading it. I had um, one of my professors in journalism school, which, you know, was like five years ago, um, <laughs> said that, uh, that subjects of your stories, and so subjects of your podcast, will read them like they're love letters. And, and that is absolutely true. People will go over every last bit of sound and pause and, you know, every last word and they, because it's about them. And they will take things from it that aren't there. Um, and so to the degree that you don't let things out in the world, I think you're in a, until it's done, I think you're in a better position. I, I want to just gauge the room really quickly. Has anyone here by, by hand clap been in a situation where they've shared an interview with someone or, or you've done an interview and they've asked you to 
get rid of part or all of what was recorded. Clap your hands if that's happened. So it's a fair number of people. You can't yeah. blame them for trying. Yeah, you just can't good give effort. into it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and legally, I mean, it, is, is there any legal consideration that you should think about you know, that, that you leave yourself open to or your organization open to if you share that work, that finished product with someone. Evelyn hinted to it, but if you put a draft out there, any change gets nitpicked six ways from Sunday. It means that you were editing it to change the meaning. You took out the part that sounded good. You made them look like X, Y, or Z. You just don't want to run into it. It's very important for you to be able to say that you exercised your editorial discretion and your decision-making about what was the most newsworthy and valuable to be in that. Full stop. You want to hold that decision making because at the end of the day, if there is a lawsuit, that's that process of how you put it together and your own judgment is the thing that's in question. If you start to say like, well, I took that part out because that guy said this and then this lady said this and this happened, it starts to all fall apart. You want to appear as confident in your choices as possible and that's the best legal defense for you. How, how much space though does an interviewee have to enforce their right to privacy, to pressure you to take something down? because of that reason? That's a great question, and it comes up in sort of a lot of interesting ways these days. Um, From the purposes of how the law views this, right, if an interviewee volunteers facts about him or herself, the law that says, look, like you may have had a right to privacy because you secluded it, and then you put it out there, that right is out the door. Now, the way this actually often plays out is if someone's telling a very intimate story or a story that involves another human being, that other human being, who I frequently refer to as the drive-by plaintiff, like that's the person who often has the right of publicity claim, or right of privacy claim, rather, because that person didn't consent. Someone else is telling their story that may or may not reflect poorly on them, And that's the problem. That's how that tends to come up. And that's often, in my experience, I found that interviewees will like think about something later and be like, oh no, what have I done? This is gonna blow up my life in some way. And they come back, one part is for them, but the better claim is on behalf of someone else. That, you just have to look at it and assess it on its fact. It's hard to generalize. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's really the only way it comes in. Otherwise, they don't really have a right. Once they volunteered it to you, knowingly understanding the context, knowing they're being recorded. Yeah. And, and Evelyn, I mean, we're at this time now, we're talking about podcasts ex- existing in, in a space where they will sort of exist forever, yeah. right? I mean, so is there a way we should better prepare the people we're talking to for that fact? That this is not going to just play once on the radio and disappear. This is going to be out there forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> Yeah, it's tricky. You know, Nabi and I were talking about this in the green room. And, you know, you don't want to terrify people. You know, you don't want them to say, you know that this will be out there forever, right? And your grandchildren might be able to hear about your partying in Vegas, right? You know, you don't want to do that because it's artificial and it's weird and no one would ever talk to you. Um, Also, it's kind of insulting. I mean, I think we all understand how the Internet works uh, and that we can be Googled. um, so, I mean, I think, I don't know how much of a big deal people should be, it's a really good question, because uh, I don't really know how much of a big deal one should make of it. I think that if you're dealing with a person with regular mental capacity, and it's an adult, and you know, and you say it's, yeah, you know, it's going to be a podcast, I'm going to put it out on iTunes, and it's, you know, it's going out in the world, I, I kind of feel like that's enough, but... Yeah, I, I mean, 
regret is an understandable human emotion that people have when they share stories, but that is time immemorial. One thing that I think complicates it a little bit is the existence of the internet. Like something living forever in microfiche in a library is very different than living forever yeah. on Google. But I would agree with you that I think most people are aware of that. Yeah. Um, I Where it starts to feel tricky is obviously children is getting consent from children right. is a whole That's separate a whole set other, of questions. Yeah. But when people are, you know, if you're like, 18, 19, 20, you're technically an adult, but also you might be making choices that your 30-year-old self who wants to get a job might not want to be out there. That's tricky, but also it's for people to make their own choices, which is hard, but I think they know. Yeah. So let's go to the next question. And actually, we need some audience way in here. This is a hypothetical scenario. So a work at attendee, one of you, gets a call from a source based in San Francisco. They call to talk to you about a corruption scandal in a local government agency. You have your iPhone set up to record all your conversations, and you want to use a clip of that conversation in this week's podcast episode. Are you allowed to use the audio? If you say yes, clap. No, you're not allowed to use it. Clap. You have no idea what's right. Clap. All right. <laughs> That's fair, Nabia. Excellent. Well, uh, someone asked a question that sort of hinted to that about consent, so, and uh, you hinted about it earlier. So California, where this is taking place, is what's called a two-party or all-party consent state. If you're going to record someone, you do need their consent. Now, the California statute in particular refers to confidential communications, so there has to be an expectation of confidentiality uh, in that call. This is important because of the Taylor Swift-Kanye West beef, which I will also explain. Okay. Um, this is like a Rosetta Stone for that. Um, <laughs> so if... If your source is calling you and they have this top secret government corruption thing they're going to tell you, they probably expect for that to be confidential. They probably expect that you have a reporter source relationship. So particularly with this type of call, it is very important that you get consent before you decide to just play it everywhere. The Taylor Kanye beef, which it's like a year ago, it's still new enough to remember. Basically, uh, Taylor Swift was unhappy with Kanye West's untoward lyrics about her. Kanye claimed that he had consent, Kim had the receipts, put a recording of Taylor speaking to Kanye uh, on Snapchat, and Taylor claimed as a recording that she had no idea was made. Um, there was a lot of hubbub and debate about that. Uh, what was very interesting is when Taylor called Kanye as the tape revealed, um, she was on speakerphone and other people were jumping into the conversation, creating an argument that it was in fact not confidential at all. Um, that didn't go to a lawsuit, no one knows, but again, thinking about confidentiality, thinking about consent, a theme that we've been talking about is very important here. And there's a map behind us that shows the, the places where there are two-party consent states and one-party consent state. So talk about the difference so a one-party consent state means that one person on the call needs to know that, you're, that a recording is happening. That sounds obvious, but what that's prohibiting against is you tapping someone's phone line and then like living your best life and then coming back and listening to the recording. That is for the NSA. It is not for you. Um, and so these states like California, Florida, whatever, like you need to be on the line and you need to be recording. You don't have to tell anyone else. In the vast majority of states... Uh, sorry, in the vast majority of states are one-party consent. California and Florida are two-party, what's better termed all-party consent states, meaning everyone on the line needs to consent. 
What's very important about this, and I have a lot of young reporters that will say, oh, but I'm just recording for my own purposes. It's not for publication. That doesn't matter. This law of one-party, two-party consent attaches to the moment of recording. It's about the act of recording itself, regardless of what you do with it. So if you're in these dark purple states, you need to ask, no matter what the purpose is of that recording, hey, um, I'd like to record you. Is that cool? Okay, great. Press record. All right, just to be clear, I'm recording you. Can you spell your name? So on and so forth and go from there. It's very important to be clear about it. Um, there's no fancy footwork of like, well, what if I go to New York and then record a person in California? I'm in New York. I got away with it. No, that's not how it works. If one of the states in question, if one person is in an in all-party consent state, the whole call is all-party. So we have quite a few questions, so let's try to get through as many as possible. Um, We have this from Camille Lancelot from Paris, France. She writes, if I record the ambient noise while walking down the street or in the subway or on a tour bus, am I allowed to use those sounds and voices in a podcast without the permission of the people that I catch on tape? Evelyn? It's ambient sound. I mean, unless you have, uh, unless there's a person saying... Monique, I'm going to kill you in your apartment on Central Avenue tomorrow at 6 o'clock. You're good. Yeah. In the bed. Yeah. Very specific. Very specific, right? Identifiable person situation. Maybe any legal considerations here? If it's ambient, who's going to sue you? You don't know. It's not identifiable. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's get into fair use and copyright. Uh, This is a question from Angela Torres here in L.A. Her podcast is called Femme Too Deep. She writes, there are a wealth of tape and uploaded interviews spanning decades on YouTube. They're not the property of the YouTube channel since some of it was public or cable television. Is the audio for that programming still not public domain? I can give an example. I'd like to use a portion of an interview given by an artist wherein they share a childhood story as an illustration of the ways humans understand ourselves. Can I use it or is it off limits? Nabia. So there's often confusion about what public means. Just because it's publicly available does not mean that it's public domain. Domain means that copyright doesn't apply either because the copyright term expired, which is the author's life plus 95 years, or if an author said, actually, I want to give this to the public domain, it's called a dedication, um, and they specifically decide that copyright doesn't apply. Something being on YouTube doesn't mean that there's a dedication, um, but in the specific example she provided, there may well be a fair use argument if the way the snippet she she's using is something she's commenting on, critiquing on, she's using a limited portion, it's for non-commercial use. There are arguments to be made, but public domain is not one of them. Evelyn, when you are using a clip, how should we make sure we're crediting what we're using? Um, so usually someone posted it and they own it. It sort of depends on what the clip is. So if it's a clip... Um, So in my world where it often happens is, uh, you know, a cop shot somebody and and someone uh, had a traffic stop with that same cop that they recorded and put up on YouTube, right? And the cop won't talk to you, but here's a little, little, you know, kernel of love about what this person is like and you want to give the audience a sense of what this person is like. So you want to, like, so you want to use that. Um, that's owned by the person who recorded it, not by the person who put it up, by the way, who might be a different person. So you you literally go through the channel and you communicate with whoever posted it and say, hey, is this yours? Did you record this? Does it belong to you? Can you give me consent to use it? Um, You can embed the whole thing. So on your website, if you want, you can embed the whole clip, but if you're gonna use the piece of a clip just as sort of journalistically as information, you have to get the consent of the person who owns it, who is the person 
person who created it, who recorded it. Um, you can, you know, if it's a public figure and you're using it to comment, you know, that's an, that's another way. Um, can we nerd out for one second? Can you Always. Can you explain why it's copyright plus 95 years? That's just the term set by the copyright office. Because of office. Mickey Mouse, right? Yeah. Yes, 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 it is because of Mickey Mouse. So they keep extending the plus however many years because of Mickey Mouse. It's true, Disney has a lot of power. Yeah. <laughs> okay, next question we have from Amanda Cupido from Toronto, Canada. She writes, do ethical standards for what's fair use also apply to branded podcasts? Or is there a different set of standards since it is technically marketing content? Do not mess around with loosey-goosey <laughs> fair use for branded content. One of the four factors of um, fair use, which you can all Google and I won't like like I'll turn on my professor hat and get really excited about if I start talking about it. But one of the factors is how does it affect the market? Um, and if you're all of a sudden talking about branded content, you are talking about things that are competitive in the market. So you should be very thoughtful. Just get licenses for what you're using. Do not play risks with fair use and branded. Okay, let's go to the next one. This is sort of a long question, but we'll get through it. This is from Catlin Roberts in Barcelona. Her podcast is Initiate, and she says, I heard that using a small clip of a well-known song in a nonfiction podcast was okay, as long as the song was integral to the plot of the story, but that sounds like a really easy line to accidentally cross, and for all I know, it's not even true. For example, in one episode of my serialized podcast, a song comes onto the radio at the moment of a character's death. Disagreements and misunderstandings about music earlier on in the story were symbolic of deeper rifts between the two characters, and so the song at the end is a message from the deceased as far as the protagonist is concerned. It gives the story closure. Is there any amount or any version of that song that I'm allowed to use? Is there another creative solution? Could I sing the lyrics myself or have someone else sing them? Or is that still copyright infringement? Nabia. You know, music is very tricky because if you think about a snippet of music, there are separate copyright in the lyrics and the composition and the melody itself. So it's just like a big old salad of copyright. And if you use it, any one of those people can get mad at you or, or quibble with your fair use decision saying it's not actually the right balance of the four factors. If you use a very small piece and you comment on it, it's integral to the story, there may well be an argument. It's hard to say without hearing it and knowing it in context. But this would be a very good example, especially if it's so crucial to the piece. The last thing you want to have to do is edit it out at the very end because you get some lawyer demand letter. Try to get a license for it. See if someone's done a licensed cover of the song is totally possible. People do get licenses to do covers. If they do that and the cover is eligible for you to, to get, try that too. Mm -hmm. But this is really one where you probably don't want to chance it and you'll want to get permission. Evelyn, how much do you all bump up against this issue of fair use in music? Um, we do run up against it quite a bit. Um, so, you know, my point of view, I'm a little softer than her on this. Um, you know, I think if it is integral to the plot um, and, you're, and you're just going to like kind of bed it a little bit, pick it up and bed it out, and it's just in there for a second to make a point, I think it's okay. Um, you know, sometimes writers, you know, will use, will use, we use it because it's funny, you know, because like, oh, th this person said, um, I, I can't, of course, I can't think of an example now. And so there's a song that has a similar lyric and we're just going to use that because, hey, it's funny. I think that's a little harder to, you know, to make an argument for, especially here in LA, like we're the local LA public radio station, so pretty much every song, <laughs> somebody here worked on that song and they'll hear it. Um, so it's, you know, if you're in Wisconsin, it might be a different situation. Um, 
I will say though, for me is a little, I couldn't tell from that example, like was she recording and that was happening and the song was on? It sounds like it was a, she was recreating something that happened. Yeah, recreations, ooh, I don't like recreations. Um, a reporter once filed, <laughs> once filed the story, um, and she was talking about this politician, and he would have these barbecues, and they would play Clearance Clearwater Revival, and then suddenly the song comes on, and I'm like, were you, were you at a barbecue? And she's like, no, no, I just got the song. And I was like, oh, no, we're not doing that. Um, so it's very specific to the situation. If it's happening and the song's in the background, and, oh, my God, it happened that this song played when I was talking to this person about this, and it's just perfect. But if you're making it happen, that's usually a, that's an alert sign, you know? That's the orange alert sign. Yeah. Okay, next question. This comes from Amy Leo in Washington, D.C. Her podcast is called From the Inside Out. She writes, what are the rules around using music in my not-for-profit podcast? I'm on a government contract and want to be sure I'm in compliance, exclamation point. Also, we don't have funds budgeted to pay for music, so if I'm using free stuff, how do I properly credit it? So the non-commercial part may be one of the factors, but it's not the whole thing, right? So if you play an entire Beyonce song in your podcast and you're like, but it's non-commercial, that's not going to do you. That's not enough. Um, so it might help the analysis, but really what matters more is how you're using it for what purpose and what for, for what uh, uh, commentary or critique. Um, in terms of, you know, what your realistic solution is, like find a friend who's a musician, like yeah. get, like, like, like have someone do it, buy it from them, have them do it for free. There's a lot of great musicians mm -hmm. that um, either want to help you or might be releasing their music on SoundCloud or other avenues under what's called a Creative Commons license, meaning you can use it for free so long as you Correct. attribute them. Mm -hmm. um, and they'll usually say exactly how they want to be attributed and do exactly that, and then you should be fine. So now let's talk about how to be fair to the people you cover, the people you're having these conversations with. And this comes from Gabrielle Mejia from Monrovia, California. She writes, I will be podcasting for my employer, a public bus agency. I hope to include actual customers and members of the public as often as possible, but how do I make sure I'm sharing their voices and stories safely and responsibly? Evelyn. Um, I hope by safely she doesn't mean that she's going to get mugged on the bus. Um, I hope by that she means that she's not going to get sued. Um, okay, here's what not what's not to do. You don't, as you know, someone working for an agency, record a conversation of someone saying, these buses are never on time. I can't tell you how long I was waiting this morning. It's just really an awful experience. But you know what? The chairs are really nice. And actually, I really like the, the, you know, the facelift of the buses and just use the facelift part and present that person mm -hmm. as someone who loves the buses. Like, you can't do that. That is not, that is taking one thing that they said out of context. And nobody's allowed to do it. Not, not the bus people, not us, and not you out there. You have to really properly give weight to the, to the entirety of what the person said. So I, I suppose legally you could do that. I, I wouldn't allow that. Um, so that's, that's what not to do. You really have to capture all of what the, and not every word, right? They can go off into all kinds of tangents. But if a person is saying, like, I hate this and I love this, you don't use I love this part by itself and present it as they only had wonderful things to say. On the other hand, you can't do the other way either, right? You can't be doing a critical podcast about a situation or a person and only use the negative stuff and present that as that's the only thing the person had to say. You have to really try to encapsulate what the person's point of view was in its entirety. Would there be any legal considerations with this one? Mm, 
not, it depends on what you're taking out of context. Um, in that particular example, it doesn't sound like it. But again, this is that place where your ethical spidey sense should kick in. Yeah. Like if you're chopping it up to have a meaning different than what was intended, that is going to be a problem. Yeah. And often what I will say is like, it's not like people always know exactly what the law is when they sue. They sue because they're upset about something. Yeah. And being and that's just like that's human. They're like, you you did me wrong and I need to do something and I have money for a lawyer. And that's how lawsuits happen. It's much more about that emotional exchange. If you're taking something out of context, you run that risk. Yeah, can I just add one sure. thing? I mean, you know, all of this goes back to that idea of no surprises and letting people know what's coming, even if they don't like it. So, you know. While I wouldn't give someone an episode of something to listen to, I'm going to let them know what's coming. And I'm going to let them argue with me and tell me, first of all, they, they're going to tell me, no, it wasn't at 4 o'clock, it, you know, it was at 5 o'clock, and I'm going to fix that. Um, but beyond that, you, know, you, you have a relationship with these people, as strained as it can be sometimes. And your reputation is that you're gonna, you want to you wanna be seen because you are, as a straight shooter. And a straight shooter doesn't do things secretly. A straight shooter is someone who goes the extra mile so that everyone who's being represented knows how they're going to be represented. They don't have to agree with you. You can stay firm on, no, this is what I'm going to do, but I just thought you should know. Because it prepares them. They can tell their family. They can tell their mom what's coming. They can, they can tell their mom not to listen. You know, they, they have that ability then to know what's coming and make their own choices about what they do about it. And that's just being a human being. We have just a couple more questions to get through in the next five minutes. But Evelyn, I think this is one that people have been talking about in a lot of some of the podcasts that have come out recently, especially in the true, true crime space. Yeah. And it's what do you do when someone is deceased and someone alleges they did something illegal? Like if there's not access to secondary sources, what's your, what's your responsibility? Um, well, the dead have no rights. Um, so uh, you have a little more freedom there. I mean, sort of I mean, depends on what it is that they're alleging that the person did. How important is it? How central is it to what you have to say? So there's a, there's a risk-reward thing that you have to do when you're choosing to include information that's risky. You, you, you have to know if no one's confirming it that, it that there's a risk, that you're being told something that's not true. Many times there are ways to confirm things, um, and, and you have to be a little bit creative about what it is. So if the thing that the person did wrong is that they stole a sweater, well, do you have it? Let me see it. You know, um, They stole it from the gap. Does the label say the gap? I don't know. It may seem like little things, but the more... Um, you can confirm through things. Um, another way to do it with something like that is, well, who did you tell at the time? Did they tell someone else at the time? And then, and then talk to those people. Can, can those people say, yeah, she told me that too, or I was there too? Um, so you have to be creative and try really hard to try to confirm the thing that you're being told. In the end, you know, dead people have no rights, so you, you're in a slightly better position. But what's your, you have to think about what is your end? You know, it can be a really salacious, great thing, but is it just interesting on its own or does it really do something for your story and progress the story and is it important and is it worth the risk? And what is that person's daughter going to think or cousin or brother? It's not just the person, you know, that, that person is special to somebody. And so just be careful with people. And, and talk about, how, I mean, how does defamation work in, in this space? <laughs> Perhaps the person isn't deceased or, or maybe they are, but they have living relatives who are hearing about this alleged crime for the first time. Where does defamation come into play? For the most part, the dead cannot be defamed. 
which Evelyn said, there are um, certain very narrow situations in some states where the estate of someone, um, if it relates, if the state can show, the estate can show that they have some interests in it, that they can try to sue. People try it all the time. These are when the kids are, you know, kids or family members or whatever are upset about it. But for all of this, I mean, you know, the heart of defamation, particularly if you're talking about a private individual, not a public individual, the question is going to be about whether you were negligent in reporting it out. And that goes to all of the little the little things that you can corroborate that Evelyn pointed out. If you're saying something happened in a hotel room, okay, did you call the hotel and see if people checked in that day? Yeah. Is this true? And if you can say, look, I only had one person on who was a source who said this, yes, but... I did all of these things to corroborate it. And in my mind, as I sit here in this chair, I had no doubt subjectively that this was false. I had no doubt that this was all true. I had no inkling that it was false. That is the defense for defamation. The defense for defamation is an intent-based standard about what you believed. And that sort of goes back to like your spidey sense, your confidence, how you believe in your story, and whether you've done everything that one could reasonably expect in order to get there. And if you have that, you're going to be fine under the law. So last question. This is from Christiane Weishart from Greencastle, Indiana. And she asks, is it ever acceptable to change your published, your published content to revise a mistake? Evelyn. If it's a mistake, please change it right now. Yes. Please go in right now and change it. And right at the top, this has been corrected. Yes. So, but I think that's an important piece to highlight. <laughs> it's, it's, do you just change it and say, oh, that never happened? What mistake are you talking right. about? I have no, no idea. You, you, How do you, you do Show that? your work. Show your work. And that doesn't mean you have to. Some people strike through. I've seen this method where some people will literally strike through the paragraph and then write the new paragraph. That's a way to do it. Um, the way I usually do it is you, you make it right. Um, and then you write a line across the top saying the story has been corrected. And at the bottom, you write a meaningful correction and apology. You made a mistake or someone gave you information that was wrong, you owe your audience an apology because you told them something that wasn't true. And in the end, as journalists, as storytellers, you're taking people on a journey and they have to believe you. And so trust is the most important thing, the most important relationship you're ever going to have with your audience. And so you own it up. You own up to it. You say at the bottom, this story, you know, in a previous version, we said this and this. Um, we, you know, we were wrong. We regret the error. Or, but in a podcast feed. Oh, in a podcast feed. Um, I, you do, I, I would do the audio version of that. I would absolutely do the audio version of that. I would fix it, and I would say at the top, you know, right around your billboard, I would say this, you know, this this episode has been updated. We've, there was an error, and um, and we've we've updated it. Um, I don't know that I'd go into all the details because it's audio, but I would say, you know, in the section where we talked about, you know, um, you know, her Louboutin shoes, you know, we've corrected, you know, the, I don't know, the the details of what she did. Um, and that's where I'd leave it. I don't know. be any guidance here. That's exactly right. Courts don't like people who are too cute. So don't try to slip in a solution or the fix to it and then be like, no one will know. Um, it, the best way is show your work, be upfront about it. And in the audio context, look, like if you've uploaded something and has an error, pull it down. Yeah, yeah. Fix it. Put it back up. If you took a snippet and you tweeted it out, it's painful and it hurts, but delete that tweet since you can't edit Twitter still yeah. and, uh, and, and put it back up there. Like you just keep your eye on the ball of what's right and what's wrong and that'll guide you through the legal trouble too. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, we just want to point you to some resources um, that can help you as you're making some of these choices. There's a great website um, 
from the Pointer Institute, and uh, they they do a lot of work focused on the future of journalism and democracy. It's a great resource. And they have 10 suggested questions you should ask yourself to help you make good ethical decisions. What do I know? What do I need to know? What is my journalistic purpose? What are my ethical concerns? What organizational policies and professional guidelines should I consider? How can I include other people with different perspectives and diverse ideas in the decision-making process? Who are the stakeholders, those affected my, by my decision? What if the roles were reversed? How would I feel? What are the possible consequences of my actions? What are my alternatives to maximize my truth-telling responsibility and minimize harm? And can I clearly and fully justify my thinking and my decision to my colleagues, to the stakeholders, to the public, perhaps to a judge? So, and to myself. And to myself, yeah, mm-hmm. most importantly. And I would just really encourage all of you, we're in this wonderful space with access to really smart women who are doing this work every day. Make connections. If you're do in a shop that's just you or maybe you and one other person, build relationships with people you trust who you can use as a resource for guidance when you find yourself in these really difficult situations. Evelyn, Nabia, thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you. That was Nabia Syed, Jen White, and Evelyn LaRubia speaking at the 2017 Work It Festival. Both the festival and the podcast are produced by WNYC Studios and are made possible by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the Annenberg Foundation. Event sponsors include Cole Hahn, Mac Cosmetics, and ThirdLove.com.